2: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, uh, two conversations I think you will find interesting. First up, Shalise Manza-Young. She is a senior writer for Yahoo Sports, specializes in the NFL, uh, writes a lot about uh, large NFL issues, and covered the New England Patriots for the Boston Globe and Providence Journal prior to her arriving at Yahoo. And she wrote a really Phenomenal piece on um, Deshaun Watson in the aftermath of uh, Sue L. Robinson's 16-page ruling. I certainly would suggest you read the ruling in full and, um, and really just unbelievably lenient, at least in my opinion. But, uh, but Chalice is the one you want to hear from, um, and she really, um, I think, just will educate you on this issue and uh, has always been a phenomenal writer who writes things that uh, many others do not. So, Shalice Manzi-Young on Deshaun Watson, as well as uh, very briefly on the, uh, on the decision involving the Dolphins, which broke as we tape this. She is followed by Chad Finn, who is a regular on this podcast, a sports media writer and general columnist for the Boston Globe. And we do a variety of uh, media topics including um, the coverage of Bill Russell's passing, particularly in Boston. One of the reasons I thought uh, Chad would be really good today, just uh, how Bill Russell's passing played in Boston. We talk about Charles Barkley's flirtation with Live Golf, uh, some of Amazon's NFL hires, including uh, they just announced uh, bringing in Dude Perfect for a alternative uh, telecast. And then we get into a discussion just about, um, you know, is there a definitive NFL uh, show of record and uh, you'll hear our conversation on that. And then we get into uh, league-owned networks and how they cover some of these uh, challenging issues like the, uh, the ruling on the uh, Watson decision. So Shalise Manzi-Young first, followed by Chad Finn coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, we bring in Shalice Manza-Young. She's been on this podcast before. She is a Yahoo Sports senior writer specializing in the NFL. She came to Yahoo Sports, I think we're dealing with now, seven years ago, after uh, almost a decade covering the Patriots for the Boston Globe and the Providence Journal. And pleased to be joined by Shalice Manza-Young. Shalice, how are you?
0: I'm doing well, Richard. How are you?
2: I'm good. We're going to... I wanted to bring you on for your Deshaun Watson column. We're going to talk about that. I just will let the audience know that, uh, as Chalice and I are taping the, um, the Dolphins, uh, the news of suspending Miami Dolphins owner, Steven Ross is literally breaking or has literally broken about 10 minutes before we started taking this. So I will ask Shalise about this at the end, uh, with, uh, the NFL taking away, um, draft picks and a lot of, uh, uh, tampering, Um, going on so we'll hit that at the end because obviously shalice is a national nfl writer so i want to get her thoughts on that but let me start here i want to read for my listener shalice the beginning of your piece uh following the um independent arbitrator sue l robinson 16 page ruling imagine you're at an atm near your home you're headed to your niece's high school graduation party and want to put some cash in her card as soon as you let go of the door of the bank lobby and step back onto the sidewalk, you're approached by a larger imposing person who demands the money you just, you just withdrew. You comply, and they run off. Your heart is pounding in your ears. Your hands are shaking. Police find the robber, and when the robber is in front of a judge, you find out not only are they not remorseful, they did the same thing to at least seven other people in the days before and after you were robbed. The judge acknowledges the crimes were committed, even says they believe the robber will do the same thing again. But since they never actually harmed you with a weapon or their fists and only verbally threatened you, the punish will be five hours of unsupervised community service. I thought this was a pretty brilliant way, Shalise, to uh, explain in layperson terms that a person can understand what the impact was of Sue L. Robinson's ruling. I wonder, um, I should say wonder, I wanted to offer you the opportunity to expand on what I just read and how you set your piece up.
0: Uh, well, thank you. Um, it's funny when I write, it's, it's I, sometimes things come to me and then other times they don't um, or it's a little harder for me to, to compose my thoughts and how I want to approach things oftentimes because I like writing about um, race and gender as it pertains to sports when I can, I try to teach people. Um, and I think in this particular situation, I had a lot of back and forth with my editor, uh, Joey Galino at Yahoo is my primary editor. And we had a lot of back and forth um, about how to frame this. And we spoke about, I do make a reference further down the column about you know what is required for sexual assault, that violence is not required for sexual assault in the same way that a lot of people believe that, well, as long as I'm not using the N word or I'm not a member of the Ku Klux Klan, then I'm not racist. And, you know, as we know, that's not the case, right? There are there are systems and structures and, and all sorts of things that happen um, to perpetuate racism. In the same way, sexual assault and sexual violence hinge on consent. And so I was trying to explain to people because, you know, Sue Robinson, through her own um, decision that, that we all saw yesterday, seems to believe that sexual assault must have a violence context to it. You know, that you have to be choked or you have to be, you know, whatever the case that it has to be a violent sort of rape for there to be sexual assault. That's the impression that she gives. And if you ask, you know, anybody who has been sexually assaulted, it it doesn't take that, you know, it can't Deshaun Watson in those situations There were some women who did allege that there was a physical aspect to it. You know, there was one or two women who said that he tried to uh, force them to perform oral sex. There were a couple of women who said that he ejaculated on them. That obviously is a physical aspect. But in the case of someone like Ashley Solis, yes, he put his penis on her, but then he also intimated to her that, oh, I'd hate for you to lose your career. You know, your career is important to you. Mine's important to me as well. Giving that impression. That, you know, if she said anything or if um, if she pursued action against him, then he, you know, in a way that might compromise his salary, that he would do something to compromise her as well. And so, you know, this is something um, I just think that a lot of people do believe the way that Sue Robinson does, that sexual assault is is only or sexual violence or sexual misconduct must have a physical aspect to it or a violence aspect to it. She wrote that. And it's just the idea that, no, that's not it. And I was trying to put it, as you said, in lay terms and in a way that people would hopefully understand and be like, oh, and even if like 10 people see it that way, you know, in the way that I spelled it out, that, you know, you suffered nightmares, you suffered in the, in the analogy that I gave with, with the bank robber or the person that robbed you as you left the bank, you suffered nightmares. You feel unsafe, unsafe in your neighborhood now, but yet the judge was like, yeah, they did it, but since they never really punched you or drew a knife on you, no biggie. And that's what Sue Robinson did to these women.
2: Yeah, that, that's, that's well stated and, and stated far better than I ever could. I read the entire ruling, and obviously I have no formal legal training or anything so to me and and it really doesn't matter what I think I'm far more interested in what you think but what's frustrating about the decision Shalise, is that the judge really sort of spells out like in in a time sort of graphic terms like what Watson did and there's there is absolutely no um like no one's arguing like against that like she mentions like in terms of the totality of the evidence, she sort of even writes like included undisputed facts relating to his use of towels, his focus points, and basically him, um, him developing erections and indicating what he wants to massage therapists who absolutely did not want to do that. So to me, like, this is the, this is what's so frustrating about the ruling is the judge, like, sort of spends the first eight or nine pages of this ruling, like, spelling out in, like, very, very clear details, like, that the NFL proved its case, essentially, that Watson um, conducted things that were a danger uh, to the safety and well-being of these other people. He he violates, you know, the NFL's, like, tried-and-true policy about undermining the league and putting the NFL... Um, at risk of integrity and then just totally does a U-turn and gives him a incredibly light punishment. That was my read of it. It was, it was such a bizarre thing because like, it feels like it's a story leading to a certain conclusion. And then all of a sudden the conclusion is entirely different than the lead up.
0: hundred percent, hundred percent. If you can see me right now, I'm like nodding my head. So exaggerated. Um, It's true. She's, she, Literally writes in there, yes, by the NFL's definition, he committed sexual assault. You know, as as hopefully everyone knows by now, unfortunately, and I think this was um, shameful on the part of the NFL, they only put four women forward. Um, yeah, reportedly, they thought those four women had the strongest cases to make, even though he ended up, as we know, being uh, sued by 24 women. Um, and so... As you read it, it's like, yes, 100%, he did these things. Yes, 100%, he did this and he did that. And, you know, and then as you said, you get to the end and she seemed to completely abandon, you know, she she knocks the NFL for how all over the place it is with um, how it rules on personal conduct policy cases previously, which she's not wrong about that. I will give her that. But to say it was an unprecedented level of women and, and an unprecedented level of misconduct that the league has seen. She acknowledges that and then goes by the standard, you know, Roger Goodell said at, you know, after the Ray Rice incident a decade ago, however long ago that was that six games is like the baseline. And so obviously if there are mitigating circumstances, it can be more than that or less than that. And it, at one point you know she seems to almost there are certain places where she's trying to talk herself out of it it's like well he's a first-time offender well yes but four women (laughs) they're four women you know you're convinced that he was sexually improper with four women so this isn't like the first time you get a speeding ticket and they want to put you in jail for eight years it's you know, you don't, or or a parking ticket, like you don't get the boot on your car until you have like 50 part unpaid parking tickets, right? So yes, this was his quote unquote first defense, but there were multiple women and you agreed that he wronged all of them. It's really, I'll be interested to see if, and I'm sure the PA won't because this was the first case that came up. And even though it's a doozy of a case, she sided with the player for all intents and purposes, I will be interested to see if the league pushes for them to find a different independent arbitrator after this, because she seemed like she fumbled this whole case. Like I don't understand how you can say, yeah, hundred percent. He did it. And then give him a weak punishment.
2: So I want to, there's something, I, I want to get to the, um some previous suspensions. Cause I think it really makes, I think it underscores how bad a decision this was in terms of the length understanding that the judge is claiming precedent but like if you're an independent arbitrator in some ways you really do have unlimited jurisdiction in this um you wrote and this sort of really hit home for me um because again I'm 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 not a black or brown woman but but I read it and I it, it sort of struck with me because I think you're on to this um, you wrote that, um, and they underscore to many of us once again how some people, even other women, perceive women as disposable, especially if they're black or brown or work in the service industry. And if, if you're arguing here, and to correct me if I'm wrong, but like there, there's an element here that these women are being treated as less than personhoods because of the profession that they're in. They're sort of de, being de, uh, dehumanized and deplatformed. Because they fall under like massage therapy, and I think that this is sort of an element of this. I'm not saying Sue Robinson factored that in, but I think that if you're going to be honest, like you do wonder if it was, uh, like, is this case different if it's uh, if 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 we're dealing with um, you know some Hollywood actress, you know what I'm saying, as opposed to these women who nobody. Knows. Obviously, I don't know the answer to that, but I think that's what you're getting at. And I think you hit on something.
0: Yes. I mean, that was speculative on my part, um, obviously, but even, and some there's an underplayed part pertaining to Deshaun, where, you know, as we saw in the most recent article from Jenny Vrentis uh, in the New York Times, where he's like texting these women and trying to like force them to stop whatever they're doing to go service him. And he's like, well, I'm just trying to support a black business. And that's infuriating because you're using that against them. You know, over the last couple of years, especially, obviously there's been so much emphasis on here's how you can support black businesses. You know, the Rams, the Los Angeles Rams encourage, um, when they give their employees Juneteenth off, they, they give them money to go Buy lunch at a black business or whatever the case may be. And here are these black and brown women running micro businesses, you know, that it's just them, maybe, maybe one or two other women or they're subcontracting with somebody else. And you're throwing it in their face, like, hey, I'm just a black man trying to support you as a black woman, when really you're treating her like a sex worker, which she is not. And that's something we've seen from Rusty Harden, And that's something we've seen from people again and again, that there is this Antiquated and gross belief that every massage given by a woman to a man must end with some sort of sexual favor. And what complicates this situation a little bit is that it seems like there were some women who were okay to do that with Deshaun, which is fine. But these women made it very clear that they did not. And he never pulled back or stopped, he just kept pressing forward. So I do think there is, you know, an element to that. Like he said himself that, oh, I'm just trying to support a black business. And, you know, I (laughs) owned a, a small business for a while. It had to close because of the pandemic. It's really hard owning a business. And I cannot imagine, you know, how great it must be if you get a message from the franchise quarterback of the Houston Texans that he wants to do business with you because, you know, you just automatically spin it forward to, Oh my goodness, if I have Deshaun and then maybe he brings, you know, the receivers with him and then I have these regular customers and, you know, it could really mean a lot for your business. And he just was using it to, to weaponize them and try to convince them to come into his web, basically where he was going to harm them.
2: The, um, the, where, the, whatever the NFL decides to do here is going to happen uh in many cases as people are listening to this sort of after the fact so just realize that uh whatever Shalice says here like the answer is 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 going to have happened in many cases by the time um you have you know you you, you start to listen to this uh but it's an interesting decision now for roger goodell Shalice, in that um if he decides to sort of press forward, change the, um, change the judge's decision in terms of the punishment here. He's obviously going to get um, an appeal from the, from the Players Association, and he risks obviously sort of blowing up the agreement that he made with the players about sort of independent arbitration and that Goodell is not the uh, final arbiter of this. Conversely, I think if he doesn't do anything, I think it's a horrific decision by the by, by Goodell in the league because I think the, the the leniency is is terrible here. So Goodell has no Roger Goodell has no good hand to play. I I, I acknowledge that firmly. It's in many ways it's lose lose. Do you have any senses we're taping this and we're taping this on Tuesday? You know before the three days are up, how you think the the league is going to play because I have read a lot of very reasonable, thoughtful writers on this topic say that they, they believe that the NFL made its case. It didn't get the punishment wanted and Goodell will not risk sort of blowing up the structure that he set up, especially given this is the first case under it.
0: I can see, I see the logic in that. Also, I do see the logic in that, but also that statement that the NFL PA released on Sunday night when they said, you know, we're not going to appeal the decision and we strongly suggest the NFL doesn't as well, that now could be taken as a dare, you know, that the other owners, they don't care about the NFLPA. They, you know, (laughs) they want to crush the NFLPA at every chance they get. They don't really care about the players. So there may be pressure on Goodell just for that reason alone that how dare the nflpa say hey we're going to abide by whatever sue robinson says so you better as well they could be like well screw you you know we're gonna we'll show you because the league does have the power in this situation it is a better system than it was before the current cba that it it initially goes to a this arbitrator but at the end of the day roger goodell can make the final decision So he could decide, I would be surprised if he does not, if the league does not appeal it, Um, even if it's just for the optics, because I've seen, and obviously Twitter polls are not scientific in any way, shape or form, but I've seen multiple Twitter polls with like over 10,000 responses where, you know right before the decision, people thought it should be a year or at least, you know, 12 games or more. Like the overwhelming numbers of people, I think Warren Sharp had on his Twitter feed. There's been other, uh, you know, opinions where people are, it just seems like people are angry. Other than Cleveland fans, (laughs) everybody else is really angry and grossed out by this entire thing. Um, So I think even if it's just from the optics, I can see Goodell, um, you know, Go Whether it's him or somebody that he designates, because that is the option that he has, even if they double it, you know, I wouldn't be thrilled if it was 12 games. Um, But even if they double it, it feels more substantial because the other thing is the message that is sent to other players in the NFL that you can run around and do this to dozens of women and nothing's really going to happen to you. You know, he has 230 million billion guaranteed. They structured the contract so that if it is just the six games, his fine is going to be, I think, $335,000 in regular season salary because they did, you know, the way they structured his contract, which is so grimy and so gross, the way that the Browns did that. And so, you know, I think for Goodell, who's, as we all know, his previous history is in PR, and this league does care a great deal about optics, And you cannot run around talking about, you know, celebrating breast cancer or pink jerseys or, you know, oh, look at all the women that we have in our league now. And at the end of the day, your actions show that you do not care about the safety, the fundamental safety of women. You can't do that. Even from an optical standpoint, I think they are smart enough to know that.
2: If a a certain um, percentage of a fan base does something, you don't want to you don't want to make the larger general generalization that this represents all of the fan base and what happened yesterday i don't think could surprise anybody especially if you're a realist or a cynic but it it did and i'm sure for you as well man it was like (laughs) it was just eye-opening how many people cheered for deshaun watson when he was leaving camp yesterday and signing autographs and stuff and i get like there's such a cognitive dissonance when it comes to the NFL and maybe pro sports in general that people compartmentalize all that stuff. But it's unbelievable that essentially within the same you know 24 hour period, the guy is uh, cheered like a conquering hero, and it really says something about.
0: It says something about us. It says something about us sports. It says something about us people in this country. Like there, women are still. I mean. <laughs> I don't want to bring, I, you know, I don't necessarily want to bring politics into it. But look at the assault on women that is happening in state legislatures across this country. We're just never seen as equal citizens. And when you add in the fact that it, from what it looks like, the majority of the women, if not all of the women he victimized were women of color. Nobody cares about us. Nobody cares about us. You know, we're supposed to be your, your mammies and... Your cleaning ladies and the people that do your hair and, and Oh, we're supposed to snap our fingers and just be funny when you want us to entertain you. But at the end of the day, you don't really care about us. And I think all of that plays a role in this. Plus the fact that Cleveland Brown fans have suffered for so long. They finally, they think they finally have a quarterback who's worth a damn. And so that's all they care about. And it's, Really <laughs> this is this is not new to the last 48 hours, but it's just another time as it's been for me in the last couple of years when I'm just like, why do I write about this league? Like, why do I write about this league and why am I interested in this league? The converse to that is that you know, I do think my voice is needed because if, if there are some things that if I don't say them, they're not gonna be said. Um but it's just How do you as a woman in particular or all these men who run around talking about, well, I'm the I'm the father of daughters. Well, where are you? Where are you? If your daughter was, you know, just trying to do anything and minding her trying to do her job and this man starts rubbing his penis all over you and ejaculates on your chest, aren't you going to be disgusted and horrified and, and Want to, I'm not saying Deshaun Watson should should be locked up in jail. I know. But don't just sit there and be like, well, he plays for my team, so I don't care. No, that's bull crap. You have to be able to separate yourself from that because he clearly has a problem. He has a problem. And if he has a kink, you can pay sex workers to go along with your kink. But these women, these 24 women who brought suits against him. They were not okay with what happened to them, and he did not stop.
2: You know, one of the things that obviously falls into my purview is the broadcast of NFL games, and historically, if this plays out as as you know, things have happened. Nothing is exactly similar to Sean Watson, but when when a when a you know a player of the league sort of something happens with them. There's talk about it, particularly the first uh, week of the season, the pregame shows, you know, maybe in some cases you get some breadth and depth. In a lot of cases, you just get really surface stuff. The game broadcast never or barely talk about it. And then by week eight, it, it, it's like referred to as a distraction. You know what I mean, Chalice? And all you've been around the NFL a long time. It's like all these coding, basic code words to basically sort of describe, all, you know, uh, off the field distractions or whatever nonsense it's used. I have zero faith. In the league's media partners here, particularly on the game broadcast, that they're going to um, discuss this whenever Watson comes back in any kind of, um, you know in depth form. Um, you agree with me on that, or will we be surprised? Because I think you know the machine always moves on, and at a certain point, um, even the league's media partners move on.
0: I as it stands right now, they will come back on like a Monday night football game, right?
2: The yeah, I think so. Depending, it'd be yeah. If you take it six, yeah, weeks. Right. I'll, I'll. You should.
0: You can keep I, I can talking, see, but I'll look if, up the if round it is schedule. a Monday night football seven. game, those aren't ESPN. I could see ESPN doing, um, you know, some kind of gauzy feature in the pregame show. You know, in the pregame show.
2: Yeah, I think that. I think in the pregame show, they they would probably discuss it with some. um, Week seven of okay. the Browns looks like um, the Ravens. So I on could Sunday. see,
0: yeah, I could see like maybe some kind of pregame, like I said, some heavily filtered. Like maybe they get one or two women to step forward and talk about it, or um, victim advocates, or or something like that. But then once the game starts, you know, like you said, the first one we might hear. Oh, you know, it's been the last time he played was December. 30th, 2020 or whatever the case may be. And, you know, he served six game suspension for pers- violation of the personal conduct policy. But no, if it's on Sunday night football, I don't expect that <laughs> they're going to launch into it. You know, Chris Collinsworth does not really seem like he cares a lot about those kinds of things.
2: All right. So as, as I mentioned at the top, as Shalise and I are uh, taping, um, the Dolph, the decision on the Dolphins comes in, the NFL strips the Dolphins Of a 2023 first round pick. They fined Stephen Ross, the owner, $1.5 million for tampering with uh, Tom Brady and Sean Payton. Um, You know, in the most unsurprising um, terms, I think, again, I'm sort of trying to process this here, but uh, the league does not go, I think, to the point where um, they're saying that the Dolphins were. in, in, yeah, they they found no evidence that the Dolphins tried to tank in 2019. I mean, uh, no surprise that that was going to be the league's rendering. And then I think Steven Ross has uh, come out to say, um, with regards to tampering, I strongly disagree with the conclusions and the punishment. However, I will accept the outcome because the most important thing uh, for us as there's no distractions for our team as we begin an exciting and winning season, I will not allow anything to get in the way of that Stephen Ross making himself the hero in this story so how um how did you view I mean again I know it's coming down as we're talking now but but how have you viewed what uh, what just came down the pike?
0: well I think it's the tampering part is really interesting um but relative to Ross's Stephen Ross's statement i it it's trash. I'm sorry. It's trash. Like it wasn't enough that he fired Brian Flores, the most successful coach that team has had in decades um, in terms of wins and losses. It wasn't enough that, you know, everything that's happened the last few months because Raj Goodell didn't specifically say, yes, we tanked. Then Brian, Fl- then Stephen Ross, you know, has to get out the bus once again or the yacht or whatever he drives around in um, and backs it over, tries to back it over Brian Flores once again. When the reality is, if you read the full statement that the NFL sent around, Roger Goodell actually credits Brian Flores's integrity and says that he wouldn't tank, that he refused and kept his team playing hard. So it's actually in probably thanks to Brian Flores that, they didn't get in more trouble than they did. I mean, what they got was pretty significant. Losing a first-round pick, I think there's also a mid-round pick in 2024. You know, Stephen Ross is suspended only for three months, but still, um, you know, it's probably because of Brian Flores and the fact that Brian Flores has far more integrity than you clearly do, Stephen Ross, that that your franchise wasn't punished more severely than it already was. So it's just really like just it's amazing to me that he sent out that statement didn't because the other part in the statement from Roger Goodell in the NFL is that it was an unprecedented level of tampering so completely ignore that part Stephen Ross and just take another swing at the black guy so I've always been team Brian Flores in this in large part because I know that he was just the first one brave enough to do it in terms of the Rooney rule being a complete farce and how many black men over the years have been you know, basically commanded to show up for interviews that it's clear from the very beginning that they're never going to get this job, but the team has to follow, you know, has to check that box. And even though they have no intention of hiring this black man, no matter how qualified he is, um, you know, Flo was just the first one to step out on, on that ledge and file the lawsuit that he did. So, but just to, completely ignore the fact that you've been docked to the level that you have. Um, and just taking one more swing at Brian Flores it says a lot about Steven Ross and not good.
2: Do I, uh, do I put my uh, X-Files hat on and make any distinction that the, uh, this news was re- released today to try to maybe get a little out of the Watson news cycle?
0: Oh, you know, I put nothing past, I put nothing past the NFL. I really, you know, like we said, like I said earlier, Roger Goodell's background is in PR. So
2: <laughs> that's that very true. He's he, uh, that's, that's the league office. I think he interned there when he was whatever, started there at 18 or 17 years old or something to that effect. Yeah. It's,
0: it's, you, it's, I hadn't even thought about it that way that maybe they were trying to take away from it. But yeah, it's all, like I said, it's just another thing. Like, I, it really has been the last year. <laughs> plus like why do I invest so much of my time in the goings-on with this league and I love I I do really enjoy the game of football covering the Patriots for almost a decade I met some great you know who came who appeared to be truly great men because in the back of my mind I also covered Aaron Hernandez and we all know happened with him so (laughs) we know what these guys what they want us to know and you know guys like Devin McCourty Matthew Slater Ty Warren Richard Seymour always had tremendous relationships with them as men as human beings as football players so there is good about this league but or they're good players they're good people in the league but the organization as a whole it's just so maddening on so many levels
2: well i appreciate your voice chalice and i'm glad it uh, glad it exists chalice manza young is a yahoo sports uh, senior writer who specializes in the nfl she, uh, she's been covering that league for a long, long time, including covering the Patriots, uh, for the Globe and Journal for many years. Uh, Shalise, it's great to have you back. Um, you know, I wish the topic was more of a positive one, but, uh, but I really appreciate your work and, uh, and please keep doing it. Thanks so much today for joining me on the sports media podcast.
0: Thanks so much, Richard.
2: All right. As I said at the top, we bring in a regular on this podcast, Chad Finn. The sports media writer for the Boston Globe, as well as the General Comms there. Chad, welcome back. How are you?
1: I like to think I'm your irregular, Rich. You're your, uh, your uh, uncommon, uh, but familiar guest.
2: Yeah, you're, I mean, if, uh, you know, this is like Letterman or Carson or whatever, you're, you know, you're like Charles Tony Grodin. Randall.
1: Charles Grodin. <laughs> I'll take Grodin. Okay. Joan okay.
2: Rivers. Uh, I mean, at one point for Letterman, obviously Leno, right? Leno did like whatever. 20, 25 appearances on Letterman before that, uh, that all went down.
1: Someone should write a book about that. (laughs)
2: Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's been done. All right. Here's, I mean, there's a lot to get to, but, uh, I even, even just sort of for my own, um, for my own interest, I want to start with Bill Russell just because you're, you work for the Boston Globe, you're in Boston. Yeah. And he's to me such a, such an iconic figure that, um, it really surpasses just his incredible accomplishments in sports uh you know from civil rights just sort of the way he um the way he was as an athlete at a time where uh the amount of racism that he faced none of us certainly in 2022 can certainly none of us who are white like myself can even process and he he you know he literally sort of towered above it all and so I was on the Globes' website, um, or I have been on the Globes' website since uh, Bill Russell passed. There's been a lot of pieces, which, which I appreciate, and a lot of good ones. So as someone who's obviously in the city where he made his athletic fame, or biggest athletic fame, what's that been like, Chad? What's it, what, what what is has sort of the coverage been like, and what are your observations of it?
1: Yeah, it... it- kind of feels like royalty dying uh dying um in a way here because uh the the things he had to endure and suffer when he played here well documented you know people breaking into his house and uh you know doing all these sorts of terrible things um uh, stuff like that when he was in his playing days the racism that he faced uh he acknowledged that, that the Boston change, this is about around 2005. Um, uh, I may have even been sooner than that actually, but, uh, there was one point where the democratic national convention was here and Russell spoke and said that, uh, Boston is welcoming to everybody. Um, and, uh, it's much, much different than it was when I got here. And, uh, You know, that was kind of a catharsis, I think, for everybody. And Russell's relationship with Boston was really strong, really good. um, After that, he was beloved. And uh, whenever you would see him at a Celtics game, and he was, for a guy in his 80s, he was pretty visible. Uh, I think some people got a little bit concerned when he wasn't at the NBA Finals this year because he usually was there to present the trophy named after him. Um, But, uh, well, you'd see him there, and it was like you're in – regal presence that uh you you couldn't take your eyes off the guy. you're like that's bill russell over there and it didn't really matter whoever well else was around he uh even at his advanced stage kind of uh, um stood above it all and uh i, I think it reflects well in the city that uh, fences were mended after all the horrible things that happened to him and uh, he really was a beloved figure here as well as um you know, around the league as you saw the outpouring of, uh, you know, grief and sadness and respect from uh, all the current and re- fairly recent players that uh, were fortunate enough to get to know him.
2: Yeah, I would say I, I recommend uh, the Howard Bryant piece. Uh, uh, Howard Bryant, the writer for ESPN, because I think he's, he takes uh, – It's always a good
1: policy. Yeah, recommend he, Howard.
2: He, yeah, he he he's probably um, a little – less, I mean, again, I don't live in Boston, so I'm not making any generalizations, but it's worth reading that piece to sort of like, at least to get his perspective on sort of where Boston is today in relation to uh, the treatment that Russell suffered. I will say, Chad, and again, I appreciate the Globe pointing me to this, and maybe it was on social media as well, but the the essay that Bill Russell's um, daughter wrote in 1987, about her father and, um, and Bill Russell, Bill Russell's daughter, Karen Russell is like in a, in a massively accomplished woman, um, on her own, you know, Harvard graduate and just, you know, obviously a brilliant woman in her, um, her, in her own right. But I had never read that, uh, 1987 essay before where she really went into sort of the bigotry that specifics. Russell experienced, Yeah. Yeah. From fans and sports writers detailed the racist attacks that the family was subjected to. And um, I mean, listen to this, the, 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 she, I believe she eventually um, was given her father's FBI file as a result of a freedom of information. Act. Mm-hmm. And within there, he was, he was uh, repeatedly referred to, according to her as an arrogant Negro who won't sign autographs for white children. <laughs> So it's like again, like uh, n- no one, on I, I none of us, I, I think, if you're being fair, would sort of say that Boston in in 2022 is the Boston of, you know, 1962. Thank God, but it really is eye opening just to read like what, uh, Karen Russell wrote and just like the kind of uh, things that that family experienced. I mean, I, I think there was a pretty famous story about. Uh, bill russell's garbage cans right like just kept being tipped or like thrown a strew and uh he went down to the police station and he said like this keeps happening and the cops are like nah nah it's just raccoons right and he's like okay i want to get a permit for a gun and then all of a sudden like the garbage was never tipped it wasn't raccoons again. anymore yeah so it's just again i don't think i mean so few of us in 2022 um can identify with what Russell faced. Not that you can't identify with racism. Of course you can. But being that kind of public figure who was so known in the community in the '60s, and uh I just I found his daughter's piece unbelievable just to read in a. Unbelievable I, I is the wrong word. I, I found it illuminating. I should say in a 2022 country. Yeah.
1: No. What was that? 35 years ago that she wrote that. It's yeah. it's interesting to yep. see what you know what. What might hold up now and and and. The, the good ways and the bad ways with that, but uh, yeah, it was uh, the the coverage was just um, you could kind of anticipate it that it was coming. So, uh, as you know, newspapers write obituaries in advance of of prominent people, and here in Boston, we've had to do yep. a lot of them. Jerry Remy passed away. I did I did that one a few yeah. years ago. Tommy Hineson and uh, the great John Powers wrote the Russell one. I'm not sure when he wrote it, but uh as you know and but you wrote
2: you wrote a piece on uh i, I really liked your piece you wrote a piece on russell as a broad yeah
1: i just wanted an angle hi- yeah <laughs> yeah because uh,
2: and him having to deal with uh just unbelievable nonsense from rick, yeah, rick barry
1: uh i didn't use much of it in the piece but i uh bill simmons actually wrote a lot about it in the book of basketball and then in his book about uh, basketball podcast, he talked with i think it was malcolm gladwell and Tony Kornheiser about it at one point and uh Barry was the most loathed guy in the league Kornheiser wrote a profile of Barry in 1983 for Sports Illustrated and uh one of his teammates said half the league hates him and the other half uh, doesn't like him very much or something like that can't stand him I think it was and um get all this on the record stuff from guys who had played with him really recently who just destroyed him um and that personality came through on the air when he was paired with Russell in the uh, the 81 finals. And, and Gary Bender was a play-by-play guy. And uh, he just could not read the room where he had these photos of Russell from the 1956 uh, Olympic team. And he, uh, he kept prodding Russell to look at him. He, he made a watermelon grin joke, which Uh, He wouldn't have had a job the next day if he did that nowadays, but it was taped to late at 1130. So I don't even know how much it resonated at that point, but uh, yeah, he, he just would not let it go. And Russell clearly was uh, not having it, even though he completely kept his composure and it made you just think watching him that he's dealt with this so many times in his life with people like this, that uh, this is nothing new dealing with a complete idiot who won't let you know, does, has either knows what he's saying and uh, doesn't mu- care that he's being completely offensive, or is just oblivious to it. Which Rick Berry was the latter. He apologized, and he and Russell actually ended up working games for TBS in the mid eighties together. So Russell at least forgave him professionally, but uh, unfathomable. You guys, I, I go out, look up that Bill Russell Rick Barry clip, and and uh, you won't believe that that actually I, I think it's the second most embarrassing. Sports clip I've ever seen to probably the Joe name of Susie Colbert thing.
2: Do, do you think um, have the Celtics, uh, or maybe even the league could do this, but have the Celtics announced they'll wear like six patches like this year? For oh, I'm
1: sure team? they will. I mean, they wore one for Heinsohn. Um Actually, the set for NBC Sports Boston, uh, where Heinsen was a broadcaster, uh, kept a tribute to him. I think maybe even through this past season, but through the first season after he passed away as well. And, uh, and Russell's uh, obviously of much greater magnitude even than Tommy, who's a Hall of Famer in a couple of ways in his own right. But um, I'm sure they'll do that 100%, uh, even if they haven't formally announced anything yet.
2: Yeah, the uh, the last one I'll say is, you know, you're so correct that like organizations like the Boston Globe, I mean, the Athletic has them as well. And at SI, they were, um, they were really assigned – Really well in advance. Obits. But um, yeah. You do have, yeah. You have these rich obits uh, that you assign writers to work on when people are alive, and uh, and it's you know in many ways it's a bit of a challenge to um, to talk to people about the subject. Uh, the subject sometimes does find out you're <laughs> working on these, so you know it does get a little gets a little tricky. But you have to do it because you you know there's an expectation from readers that if a person dies. You read their life in full, and I guarantee—I mean, you certainly don't have to confirm this, Chad, but I like guarantee there is certainly one that the Globe already has somewhere for Bob Cousy. He's now in his nineties. Carl Yastrzemski's in his eighties. Um, you know, we we there there are in probably every major American city some great sports people in their seventies, uh, eighties, or nineties where you have these obits. Uh,
1: yeah a couple of things on that i I did jerry remy's red sox broadcaster and beloved guy and i probably wrote it he had cancer i think eight times um before uh, finally he passed away from it uh last year um i probably wrote it four or five years ago and uh i dreaded the thought of him knowing i was doing it i talked to him regularly he would something would be going on at nesson uh, the Red Sox broadcast network. And he would text me and say, can you believe this BS, you know, or something like that. I'm sitting here thinking, <laughs> I have this relationship with this guy and and uh, I'm writing his Ovid. It's weird. But I did tell a couple people, I told Don Orsillo, who is his former play-by-play partner who now does the Padres games. And I told Sean McDonough, who broke Remy broke in with, but uh, I, you know, made them swear on a stack of bibles that they wouldn't tell him i was doing it because uh it just i i don't know how i'd react if somebody was doing that for me i'd feel like they're writing me off or something um so i i don't know but uh uh i don't know the other thing is i don't know if you saw shaughnessy's column on koozie he's incredibly lucid uh and and sharp these days still and and uh it was really poignant because he he sounded like somebody who um it, you know realizes that his days are waning and he was really really candid about that himself he's the, a lot of those old Celtics have passed away Sam Jones uh you know Havelchek was a few years back now Tommy Heinsohn a couple of years ago and uh Kuzi was really candid with Dan about uh you know recognizing that uh, he probably doesn't have much time left himself
2: All right let's do a couple of different we're going to go through a number of different media topics uh in this podcast and one um let's start here. What did you make Chad of uh, Charles Barkley's flirtation with live golf that ultimately he's um, he, he, I I don't know. I I don't know if there was ever, if it was, if there was an offer that was ever reported.
1: Say they didn't get one, right? Dollars. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, credit Andrew Marsha and, and some others are obviously reported on this. I don't remember reading like any dollar figure, but you know, so I'll call it a flirtation. And so, um, what'd you make, what'd you make of sort of everything that went down with Barkley? And obviously he, um, he has formally said that he'll, um, you know, he's, he, his intention is to stay with, uh, with Turner sports.
1: Well, Barkley is one of those rare people in life who can get away with a ton of things that, uh, other people might not get away with, uh, just because of the, uh, The appeal of his personality, he's always been super candid anyway, so uh, maybe he can cross a line that others can't cross. Um, And maybe this is totally hypocritical on my part, but I felt like this would have been the line that that made me think of him in a different way if he had taken that money. Um, He was at least straightforward about the motivations, which is it's a bleep ton of money. You know, a lot, you know, he's not doing the, uh, we're trying to grow the game thing that the, the BS that so many of these other guys are, are spreading when they're reading from there. uh, seems, sounds like they're reading from the same script. Um, but, uh, it, it would have been hard to reconcile that with the, the, I think the respect that, uh, uh, we have for Barkley for for how straightforward he is and uh, how he's usually on the right side of things so he's, he's got incredible common sense beyond the fact that he's such a compelling personality the other fact is uh you know if he if he indeed had to uh leave Turner for that uh, that would have been a huge bummer too because that remains uh, it remains the must watch studio show in sports and uh, he's the, the the focal point of that
2: Yeah, listen, obviously I'm glad he's back, uh, or he he plans to stay. I've written many times that Inside the NBA is, from my eyes, the greatest uh, sports studio show of all time. I think it's had a massive impact on the popularity of the NBA, which is very rare, almost unheard of, for a studio show. And like you, I appreciate Barkley being honest about um, his motivations and, and being honest about a lot of the hypocrisy that exists. But I would have been with you. That would have been, for me, a, a a bridge too far. And a lot of it is just getting the money directly from that Saudi fund. And maybe, you know, maybe that's a distinction without a difference if you're like, hey, you know, um, I watched the NBA and they have a relationship with China and every, you know, China's human uh, rights record is uh, deplorable or, hey, I have an iPhone, you know, and it's sort of, right, it's, right. it's made, it's made in China. Like I get that. And in many ways we compartmentalize and rationalize stuff. But for me, that would have been, that would have been the line too. Um, maybe some of that has to do with me as a New Yorker and my, uh, I lived in New York City when nine eleven happened. I had my own feelings about that. So yeah, that, that would have been, I would have felt, I would have felt significantly different about Charles Barkley, someone I immensely like, um, and have interviewed many, many times and has, uh, as a media person in the space, he has been great to me, uh, unquestionably so, but that would have been my line too. And you're welcome to criticize me and Chad for that. But, um, but I'm with you on that, uh, Chad, you know, the, the, the last one quickly on live, um, and this had been reported by, uh, sports illustrated, uh, maybe some other places. Um, the viewership on their YouTube channel is not, has not been good. So, uh, you know, drawn a little bit over a hundred thousand. Um, I don't know what the exact social media impressions are. It's very clear at this point. They don't really seem to care what the numbers are, right. They're just trying to load up on golfers and then they'll go from there. But at this point, you know, the, the public isn't necessarily like clamoring for this golf. Maybe that changes once they get on a linear network. But at the moment, um, they're not popping. Like at least the competition at the moment isn't popping for people.
1: No, it isn't. No. And you wonder if that comes around and, and, uh, you know, maybe if Tiger had taken their $800 million, they supposedly yeah. offered him that would have had an earlier effect. probably would have, if he were actually playing, uh, you know, jumped on the tour right away. But, um, yeah, it will, time will tell whether it resonates. I, I, I don't know if you saw the, uh, Steve Politi column and, uh, uh, Star Ledger, uh, just happened to read it on Twitter. He's one of the best columnists. He
2: went, he, I think he went to Bedminster. He went to the tournament, right? Yeah, he went to Bedminster. Yeah, it right.
1: sounded like a uh, just kind of a grim, boring scene. And, uh, yeah. you know, not a lot of people there. As somebody else described it as looking like the day before the tournament begins in terms of what the crowds were, you know, you got prominent guys there. I mean, we know who all, all the golfers are who have uh, jumped over already and some of the bigger names. And, um, for whatever reason, uh, it uh, really sounded like a minor league operation. Uh, the, the, maybe the money changes that. Maybe they just keep adding uh, big and big name players and people sort of forget, uh, you know, where this is all coming from and where the money is coming from and it actually becomes prominent. But uh, right now it looks a little uh, just looks like kind of a, uh, a boring golf event that uh, is, uh, yeah, really isn't connecting with anybody.
2: Yeah, they, I mean, honestly, there was nothing about that Bedminster tournament that that was absolutely crazy. nothing. I, I mean, it, it <laughs> I mean it was it, it was it was pretty you know. It it was it was pretty gross all. That right? didn't it
1: used to be your home course honest. did it? No, I've uh <laughs> I, I
2: have never no I, I have never played on that course nor would anyone uh Well,
1: it's a graveyard the, too now, right? So.
2: Yeah, apparently there's tax yeah. yeah. uh, advantages there. Um all right. The um one of, the, one of the things I definitely wanted to talk to you about was Amazon. Um, we are uh, a couple. I don't know exactly the date. It was I think within the last uh, two or three days of whenever you'll listen to this. Uh, Wall Street Journal uh, reports that Amazon has hired the Dude Perfect fellas for a alternative telecast for their Thursday night football presentation. Looking at Lana Russo and Public Relations giving, uh latteing up the Wall Street Journal. I mean that. Uh, it's exciting times for Amazon Sports PR there. And they're, uh, they've hired some very, very good people on that PR stuff, I will say. So, what, So Chad, that, that's interesting. I mean, like, we, we have seen the Mannings, obviously, uh, for Monday Night Football. We have certainly seen traditional, like, mega cast options, like coaches' film room, etc. This is different. Like, Amazon went a little off the board here. And quite frankly, I have no idea <laughs> what the interest will be or will not be. Do you have any yeah. sense? I, li- I wish I had a... Ba- Obviously, I know these dudes are... Uh, dudes, uh, ironic there. I know how popular they are on YouTube. I just have no idea if this translates into football fans watching them on a... Th-
1: yeah, I don't know anything about them. They got $11.6 million, in, uh, million dollar, 11. six million Instagram followers, and uh, I couldn't tell you the first thing about them. What, what's their demographic?
2: Their demographic is... I think they have maybe i i'll pull this up as i'm talking i think they have 58 million subscribers That's correct, yeah on their on their yeah. is that right on their youtube channel so they do you know their demographic i'd would think would be uh under 35 year olds who love like the like crazy tricks that they have performed over the last uh 6 so, like, years so, jackass I mean, and Barstool? uh no i think they're a little more um Yeah, they're not – I think they're not as like, let's see how far we can injure ourselves (laughs) the way the jackass group was. I think they're more trying to like come up with – I mean, I've seen them a couple of times. I can't say I've seen them a ton, but like, you know, they're more of like, can we create this like incredible trick shot that's like a Guinness Book of World Records. Oh, okay. Do you know what I mean? Like they're they're kind of inventive in – like how they've come up with their tricks. They're also, I think, the big difference with Jackass is I think they appeal to a much younger group. They're much more, um, I think they they sort of are much more, f- uh, for lack of a better word, family family oriented, family friendly, if that's uh, sort of in TV terms. So they don't staple
1: um, their nuts or anything like that. Okay.
2: Yeah, no, they're not. Yeah, they're, they're not doing that. So, but the but and again, like they certainly, you know, they're. There is precedent in Nickelodeon's presentation yeah. that CBS has done. And so I think, as a one, if you told me this was a one off, like, all right, that's kind of interesting. Uh, that The question is, like, what would be the audience sort of on a week to week basis? But then I get, and I'm, maybe I'm sort of contradicting myself, then it might not even matter because if they have like seven different mega cast presentations, do you know what i'm saying like they're just they're just doing it for sort of viewer choice as opposed to um we're looking to get you know five hundred thousand people watching this yeah they're just
1: going to tell us what the cumulative audience is right rather than the the specifics yeah
2: we'll see maybe that's maybe they will it's all proprietary for i'm curious
1: about it i mean i want to see what they do relative to the nfl it seems like they're kind of the uh forefathers of all these uh heavily edited trick shot videos that people put out there now you know where guy punts a basketball and then the ball disappears and the frame changes slightly and the ball goes through the hoop (laughs) seems like they're uh um sort of the the predecessors to to that fad which is such a big youtube thing but uh yeah. yeah
2: do you think uh you know i mean like the the um you know thursday night football uh viewership um it's funny because like the, you know, the networks were sort of say, well, you know, we really maybe couldn't pull off the kind of gigantic number we wanted, but they still pulled, you know, uh, over 14 million. Uh, I'll just go back to 2020, 14.1 million, 2019, 15.4 million, uh, 2018, 14.9 million in terms of average audience. So, you know, in television, Chad, like linear television, that destroys everything on a a night basis. You know what I mean? That's the mega monster. So Amazon, I think Amazon's Thursday Night Football will far and away be the most watched thing that night. Okay, unless obviously like, I don't know, Netflix uh, or Disney Plus has like a new, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi like (laughs) season finale or something crazy like that. But the real question is going to be, and this is like the real fascinating one to me is, Can they pull the linear numbers that, like, like Fox was able to pull, or CBS pulled back uh, when they had it? Or are are we looking at more like, you know, nine million viewers for Thursday Night Football, ten million viewers, eight million viewers, and that's the trade off for the NFL? Do you know what I mean? It's like they lose four or five million viewers because this is now a streaming property in exchange for obviously the. Multiple. Yeah, usually
1: emails from people saying, where the hell do I find this, you know, in the the older demographic because, um, you know, we've gone through it with baseball this year, with Peacock having the weekend morning game and, uh, you know, being scattered, Apple TV Plus having a game and and scattered all over the place or even ESPN Plus with the uh, NHL this past season for the first time. Um, It confuses people that aren't that up on – what streaming is? They're still cable subscribers, um, and and not sure how to, you know, find these uh, find these various places where the games are suddenly migrating to. So I think they're going to lose a, a pretty decent chunk of audience just in that regard. Where, uh, you know, th- th- there's going to be some initial confusion about where that Thursday night game went. Um, but uh, there's going to be so much buzz around it, too. I mean, you've got the Michaels-Herb Street broadcast team. Uh, great first game, right? Chargers-Chiefs and uh, a, a much more appealing schedule, at least early than Thursday night usually got. So uh, they'll market the hell out of it. But we'll see if that, uh, that translates to anything close to the numbers they were getting before. I don't think it will, at least, uh, at least initially.
2: Do you um... – Have any of the people that they've hired for pregame stuff, uh, Richard Sherman, uh, you know Ryan Fitzpatrick, Carissa Thompson, people like that? Is that while they all individually may be good, does anybody, does that group collectively make you want to watch? No, but I don't think
1: there's an NFL program that does uh, airs on Sunday. You know, this is Thursday, but really the only shows that uh connect with me as a viewer separate from you know being a media reporter um are the daily shows that good morning football you know had some shakeups in its lineup but that that show always uh when uh you know uh k was k adams was still there and and nate burlson was still there even though he left a little while ago chemistry was incredible with them um i think uh uh ESPN's NFL programming when Ryan Clark Lewis uh you know Mina um Laura Rutledge that group is involved Marcus Spears uh they have great chemistry and you want to watch to see what they have to say about things and and a lot of diverse opinions too so that's good but in terms of studio programming pre-post game stuff uh probably nothing is really uh uh really connected with me in in a viewership standpoint like those kind of shows do
2: yeah, I think. I mean, I think the the it's interesting. The I don't know if there's an NFL pregame show of record. Fox would tell I you. Think it's, in um, terms of kind of gra- It would. Well, I'll get to it. Like in terms of gravitas, I, I, I'd sort of, you know, really, sort of being adult with the viewers. I think NFL Live is probably that. I mean, I think they're willing to sort of tackle some. Some tough issues. I don't watch yeah. Good Morning Football regularly. You do, but I know that there's a lot of people who, um, who really like that show. I, I had Jamie Urkel on this podcast not too long ago, and I I really like her. So I, I anticipate that that group will will do well. You are correct. Like NBC will tell you, like their Sunday Night Football pregame show is the most watched pregame show of all, which is true just based on the numbers, okay. but. I don't know how many football fans just like sort of thought that like Harrison and Dungey and you know when Chirico was doing it was like sort of destination. Sims now I mean, too. They kind ESPN of ESPN will tell you that they're sent
1: Rodney elsewhere.
2: Yeah. You know Eisen and that group have have, have great history and uh and I think Eisen's a yeah, tremendous tremendous that. host. But yeah, again, I don't know if that's like sort of your your destination viewing, and certainly based on viewership, and some of that's obviously has to do with the NFL Network. That's not the dominant show. ESPN Sunday Morning Countdown stuff, or you know, they'll or Sunday NFL Football, they'll they'll say that we're the dominant show. We put our three hours in, and again, they definitely put length in and and too much turnover million, with that show, two million viewers. But that, well, then I was just say, then you go to Fox, who says, okay, great on ESPN, but. Are um, But Fox NFL Sunday has won um, the Sunday pregame viewership uh, battle for the last, whatever, 20-something years. So we are to the definitive show. And I can't argue with that in terms of longevity, in terms of numbers. But again, like conventionally, how many football fans are really like, all right, I got to go to Fox NFL Sunday because like I can't miss what, you know, Howie and Jimmy have to say this week. I think a lot of it, and it's no disrespect to Fox on this, I think so much of it, Chad, is habit. And maybe if you're yeah. in an NFL city where your game is coming up on Fox, you just pop on Fox like before or, or the NFL today before. So um, the genre is different than it was back in the eighties and nineties and and maybe the larger point is like there isn't no, it, it isn't maybe it is an impossibility when it comes to the NFL to sort of be the definitive show of its time because there's just so much content that floats throughout all these different networks.
1: There's no NFL today today. Right. I mean, <laughs> go, you know, back to what the, the original was back in the seventies when the, the form.
2: And I'm not sure how great that show was. I think there's a little more nostalgia, but it, it did kick ass against ABC, content, that, uh, no mean,
1: matter what they were, you know, whether it was a modern cost or whatever I mean, they ran out there, they yeah. just wrecked them in the ratings. But uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's evolved and gotten better. Um, the, the, that type of program, but uh, I, I don't know. The Fox one seems to me to be the one because of continuity, but that.
2: I think that's probably true. I think if you ha- I, yeah, I think if you had to, I mean, if, if, let's put it this way. I think if you asked 100 NFL fans, like name a, a NFL pregame show, I think Fox NFL Sunday would win that um, a- identification survey.
1: Yeah. Too much back slapping and, fake laughter on that one though that's a, that sets the bar for that although i think Howie is about as good as it gets and and uh in those roles especially when you got to be serious about things he can kind of toggle between being the serious guy and being a guy who's in on the joke too
2: yeah and i think menifee is underrated i've always thought so i think he's a who was
1: the original He's a good studio uh, host who just hosts. keeps things
2: going uh james brown before him, that's right, right.
1: that's yeah. right he's also obviously in,
2: in all timer. the great the thing about menifee and james brown i think that um they intrinsically understand Uh, ernie johnson the same way rebecca Lowe the same way although ernie ernie and rebecca have i I think more airtime than the than the other two i mentioned they they know it's about the analysts you know what i mean they're ego free like they understand that in order for the show to shine the the show has to be analyst driven and i think be the point guard yeah i think menifee's been very very good about that that he's sort of he's he's okay with, with letting the rest of that group sort of shine. Although I think probably structurally on that show, it has to be the case because there's a lot of people on the show. You know what yeah. I mean? You got, you got four guys and then you got like, you know, you'll have like yeah, a comedy segment. You got Glazer's got to do his thing. So there's a lot going on with that show.
1: You don't have to name names, but can you think of a show where the uh, studio host wasn't like that, where he had to get his own... Uh, point of view in and get equal time to everybody else yeah
2: i think and I, by the way i think it's smart for them i think eisen's role on on his show is much different than yeah, menifee and right. um and james brown More of I think a focal I, point yep yeah i think eisen i you in i think in many ways you want eisen's take on something on that um show i i've never be, you know i like i'm not a michael Irvin guy i'm not really a mariuchi guy when it comes to like um analysis that show so like i i when i've watched that show like i appreciate eisen being a focal point because i think he he has an interesting take and i think he he knows the league um but as i'm sort of you know sort of going down do you think burkhardt is like that at all when fox does its mlb baseball stuff not really i think he's more of a point guard actually now that i think about
1: it i think he's got one of the toughest jobs there is because yeah. that, that crew is all over the place between, you know, Ortiz kind of takes it over and uh, you don't know yeah. what you're going to get from Thomas and A-Rod's liable to say something absurd. Right. When Ra- uh, Ra- when Ravage
2: did baseball, when Ravage did baseball tonight, he was an absolute, he was like Eisen. He was a part of whatever that. I've heard complaints that he's doing
1: that on Sunday night, the broadcast that uh, he offers a little bit too much opinion.
2: I, I like him. I actually, uh, he's. I, I've liked him and he's growing on me a little bit in that role. But I but I by the way, that would be a fair criticism if you don't like that, because he he talks a lot for a play by play person. Yeah.
1: I hadn't noticed, but uh, a couple of people have made me aware of it.
2: But I'm I'm comparing it to Vest Gersin and A Rod, so I just consider it a massive upgrade.
1: <laughs> yeah. I I don't miss Joe Morgan yet, but uh oh my God. another year of Arod would have done it.
2: I loved uh I really love John Miller. I think he's an exceptionally good. Baseball game caller, but Morgan, Morgan was hard to take. Uh, I mean, he it just it was it was a lot of you know. It's a
1: slider, John. Of, That's a cutter. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, not even that. It just it was a lot of like sort of like finger wagging the audience and anti analytics and. He
1: was one of the great analytic like players of all time, and he hated them. I he didn't realize that it made him look even better in baseball history.
2: He was, I mean, a great great player. But but by the way, like I for a long time. Um, was a big defender of McCarver. I used to get like so much like anti stuff about that at SI but uh, I think sometimes you're in many ways you're um, if you have someone in a local market and they feel revolutionary when they go national, you um, you 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 just you you like them a little bit more. So McCarver was in New York for me when I was a kid, and I think probably you know when I heard him on Fox, I always had that. I think if you're, uh, if you were in New York when Burkhart was doing the Mets, um, I think you sort of look different. Like I know, like uh, I think
1: Burkhardt's great. You know, I, I'm really yeah, happy he, to see this like, opportunity.
2: Yeah, like I know one thing that Martian and I, uh, we don't always agree on, um, on sort of analysis of things. But one thing we definitely agree on is like Iron Eagle, who was like in our market for a long time, and then he goes national, and you're like, this guy's, this guy's great, and we saw him when he was young. It's the same thing with Burkhart. So for you, you know, I'd imagine if there's somebody in who was in Boston either as a reporter or as a broadcaster, who then went national, You like Orsillo. Like, I had not heard of Orsillo, and you did, right? So I think my sense is nationally, you probably like Orsillo maybe. Not saying people don't like him, but you know what I mean? You probably have He's a— He's beloved here. Like, yeah. Yeah, you, you have a different viewpoint of Orsillo than I would, given he was in your mind. Well,
1: you mentioned Jamie Erdahl earlier. She she was used to work at NESN, do the sidelines for Red Sox games, almost as a fill-in um because jenny dell was here at the same time but uh, she was somebody you you could see on the air that uh if they recognized what they had that she was going to go places so she's one of those people that uh, uh, doesn't surprise you at all with the success that she's had
2: that's a launch pad man well they don't keep anybody
1: you know know. uh, yeah i mean you know randy scott yes sports center anchor was here briefly and uh yeah all kinds of people have come and gone jenny uh, yeah yeah it's uh a n- a number Either of that, or there you, lot you come here, they let you go, and you're never heard from again. <laughs> that also happens quite often. So one or the other is extremes. No, Russillo is a Boston guy, right? He made it big. He is. Yeah, he uh, was on the uh, radio station you couldn't get once you got uh, over the Zakim Bridge on your way out of town. But uh, put in his reps.
2: All right, uh, let's let's finish up with this. I know you wanted to talk to me about uh, league-owned networks and your your thoughts on them we may disagree on this we may agree on this but what what did you what what you were you were hankering to say well
1: i'm just jumping around today because we've got the as we're recording this uh major baseball trading deadlines going on the uh
2: um, one soto has been traded as we're recording this and and the dolphins have been fined as we're yeah
1: which it. just broke as we were about to do this and so i'm kind of toggling back and forth here between the mlb network and the uh the nfl network and when i had the nfl network on i didn't notice if they were talking about the miami uh situation yet but i i just made me think about which of these uh you know league affiliated networks kind of feel like does the best and most honest job of covering the league that they're entangled with and uh i was curious your thoughts because you know i've talked about it before i I like the i I like the mlb network i think they're, they're pretty passionate and over the top about baseball but they'll also uh, get into the issues when they have to and uh, uh, I don't know if they I don't yeah, trust the NFL to do that always
2: well so I to me and you i I imagine um you probably watch these networks more than I do right now although I certainly have both of them where I'm here I think on certain topics they're phenomenal like on a trade deadline yeah. day I think MLB Network. this is their awesome. Christmas. Yeah, and I think like free agent frenzy, I think NFL network will be phenomenal. And then I think they do have reporters who are willing to be critical of the league on certain issues on both networks. But here's where I think the line does get um, sort of drawn. I mean, my own colleague at the athletic, Chad Ken Rosenthal, was essentially running. You make a good point. he, he (laughs) He wrote a critical piece on Rob Manfred, they froze him out of television. And then they, they left them. So I do think there is, for all those major league network baseball guys who are on air and also have jobs at other places, I do think they in some ways make a tacit agreement with themselves that they're not going to criticize Ron Manfred to a certain point, right? There's just certain lines they won't go. And I have found that with the NFL network as well. I think they they have great reporters there, people like Judy Batista, Steve Weiss, and Jim, my buddy Jim Trotter. And I think... Especially Trotter, he he always sort of goes over the line or hits the line. But I do think there are things that they – there is not massive criticism of the commissioner's office on certain things. Do you agree? I think there are times where you can be critical of the league, but the criticism isn't always specific to the commissioners. And I feel like that is – that's sort of the agreement in some ways that you make if you're going to work there.
1: Well, I have it on right now, and uh, we've got uh, live from Titans training camp on here right now. Rather than anything about the Dolphins, so uh, if you're interested in a Derrick Henry interview, you can go get that at the point. They will.
2: I mean, they'll have. I mean, there's undoubtedly they're going to have something on the Dolphins um, fines, but
1: they're not going to rip Goodell for being the uh, the the person you appeal to after something like the Devon uh, the Deshaun Watson case is settled. Yeah. Although uh, the where, NFL. Where you-
2: yeah, I mean, there's. The issue should be with the. I feel like with the judge more than uh, Goodell at the moment. Although we'll see what um, Goodell will do. The the here's the like the sort of the, the again. This is my ten thousand foot from above view where I feel like the league owned shows rarely go. You could by the way. You should tell me if you disagree with this. I don't feel mm-hmm. like they're ever critical of owners. I, I feel like ultimately they're very good on player issues, which. I think they have carte blanche to do. I think in many ways they could be very good on league issues. I mean, even I give the NFL Network credit. like They did assign uh, a division to talk about like health issues and concussion issues eventually. But that's just not a place where I think you're going to find four hours of of criticizing Dan Snyder or four hours of criticizing (laughs) Stan Kroenke. I just think because, and let me just finish. This is the reason. It's a very obvious one. That ne- the the networks of MLB and NFL in particular, they're they're in every single league office. I'm sorry, they're in every team office, right? All the league personnel watches them. There is no way that if you just went off for like hours on Steven Ross or went off for hours on Cronky, that like the Rams and or Dolphins wouldn't let the league office know, like, hey, why is our own league uh, network killing us right now? So that's the one thing I don't see and that's the one thing you hope that like the NFL, I'm sorry, like um, ESPNs of the world and uh, the NBCs of the world. You know, that's where you have to have to hope for. But I don't know, Chad. I'll be honest with you. I don't have. When it comes to game coverage like this fall, I have no faith in NFL broadcasters talking about Deshaun Watson with any kind of depth. I think you know, after the first week, you know, by It'll week, be cursory, by, yeah. yeah, by week ten, it's going to be like off the field distraction. You know what I mean? It's going to get into that oh, kind God. of language
1: yeah uh, all right
2: so i just gave you my filibuster how do you
1: see it as long as they don't uh talk about what he's overcome right
2: Uh, yeah
1: i mean that happens sometimes it does no the the guy player beats up his girlfriend or something like that and then they they talk about the distractions
2: well you uh, watch good morning football do you how do you find that they have done i mean obviously there's talented people on that show kyle
1: brant was phenomenal talking about this yesterday yeah. yeah, like I, I have no
2: doubt they'll be good on that, but how are they usually when it comes to like being critical of Goodell or owners? Does that ever happen?
1: Um, up to the line, you know, yeah. they're not going to rip him like the uh, uh, columnist would and, you know, the athletic or the globe, but uh, they'll, they'll do the conventional wisdom to a point um, where uh, there's, it feels like they know that they have to acknowledge it, but they're not going to go into those depths of, um, you know, being overly critical or saying he's incompetent or, you know, anything like that, that, uh uh, 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 a columnist or, a uh, you know, somebody on one of the sports talk shows and talking head shows first take or whatever would say. Uh, but, uh, they don't completely ignore that stuff either. They do what they, they do the minimum.
2: I can't believe the Red Sox gave up Christian Vasquez chat bit of a giveaway. No,
1: I don't know what they're doing. Wait, is this a baseball podcast now?
2: Yeah, I just like I just like I want to pretend <laughs> that uh, it's me, Passon, and Ken Rosenthal
1: chatting about uh,
2: baseball. All right, is there anything else that uh, you wanted to hit that we didn't hit today? I know we were all over the map, but uh, that's sometimes that's good.
1: What did we not hit? I don't know. I think we got it covered, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, next time I have you. I mean, as we as we head on over the next couple of weeks, I'll have you on for our NFL preview stuff. We'll be getting into the Big Ten because those rights deal, uh, the rights deal is gonna um eventually be decided very, very soon. What did you wanna say?
1: Aaron Judge coverage. You mentioned that one earlier. I think Oh yeah. What uh text. yeah so this is the
2: last one. Boy my producer Patrick's gonna be mad because I told him I would get him out of here on like two minutes ago. But yeah, do you think uh how do you think the like when he gets close to Maris in particular, will it will you think MLB's um sort of apparatus be like he's about to pass a historic mark or are they going to keep the bonds some so McGuire sort of numbers as the numbers. It's kind of interesting to
1: me. It already feels like we're trending toward the the former, especially because the Yankee Yankee angle is irresistible to to those networks, especially you know ESPN, which is ex- essentially an extension of the Yes network right now when it covers baseball. Um but uh um I, I think it's irresistible and and uh what you're seeing is sort of the unspoken thing like 61 is still the record because uh you see judge has 41 you know he's ahead of maris base, and you almost never see bonds mentioned with this and it doesn't yeah. feel deliberate uh it feels irresistible because you got the two yankee yankee sluggers and uh uh you know bonds uh is kind of the, the the afterthought with that
2: by the way do you do you know how crazy it is to think that sammy sosa hit more than 60 homers three times
1: yeah, I don't have a Hall of Fame vote yet, and he's gonna be off the ballot before I do, but uh I would vote for him just for those reasons. I liked watching him play. nineteen
2: ninety-nine, two thousand one, nineteen ninety-eight. 1998. Th- those three years, he hit sixty plus, including sixty six in ninety eight when Maguire obviously hit his seventy. It's just I mean, it's just unbelievable, like to sort of just look at that home run list and you're like you know, you remember ninety eight when they when Maguire and Sosa went on that chase, but like I totally had forgotten. Like, Sosa did this twice before.
1: Has a definitive story on him been written? Like, uh, the whoever the modern Gary Smith is. Um,
2: I know Riley uh, Riley wrote something during, I think, his, the, late, the latter end of his yeah. days. Uh, well, obviously, a lot of steroid related stuff. They're pro- they're probably, I, I don't know that answer. He's
1: persona I mean, non grata to the Cubs. I mean, he, yeah. you know, McGuire's in baseball. Some, Sosa's yes. gone.
2: Yeah, I would imagine someone has attempted that, but I don't
1: know. Mm. He's a weird guy
2: Yeah Interesting Alright Chad Finn Sports media writer For the Boston Globe Follow all his work At the Boston Globe Follow him on Twitter And uh, and he'll be back soon To uh, to talk more about uh, Sports media stuff Because uh, we are going to Head into the busy season In the next couple weeks Chad thanks for popping on today Appreciate it No
1: idea what the Red Sox Are doing <laughs>
2: Alright back in the studio My thanks to my guest Shalise Manzi Young And Chad Finn For coming on uh, previous conversations uh, just had uh, this week uh, Ian Dark, the uh, fine ESPN soccer commentator who uh, called England's amazing win over Germany in the Women's uh, Euro Championships. Berto Andrade Franco, an ESPN feature writer who uh, wrote one of the best pieces of the year, traveled to Evaldi to uh, do some just remarkable work. And Sports Illustrated writer and copy chief Julie Kleegman on uh, the intersection of mental health and athletics before that had a reckoning for hockey canada a conversation with my colleagues at the athletic katie Strang, dan robeson ian mendez jamie erdell the new uh, uh, host of good morning football was on this podcast had chat on about uh, media deals tom rinaldi of fox has been a recent guest on this uh podcast uh, as has uh, espn investigative reporter tj quinn and espn chairman jimmy pataro if you like you know, conversations, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note uh, where you get your podcast. That's how this continues. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for his hard work. I want to thank everybody Kings 13 for their support and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.